chapter 15, verses 1 through 37. Verse 1. And straightway in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and bound Jesus, and carried him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Burkett notes, The foregoing chapter gave us an account of Judas's treason in delivering our Savior into the hands of the chief priests. In this chapter, we find our Holy Lord brought by the chief priests unto Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, in order to his condemnation. Once observe that it has been the old policy of corrupt church governors to abuse the power of the civil magistrate in executing their cruel and unjust censures and sentences upon holy and innocent persons. The chief priests and elders do not kill our Savior themselves, for it was not lawful for them to put any man to death, being themselves under the power of the Roman government. Accordingly, they deliver Christ over to the secular power and desire Pilate, the civil magistrate, to sentence and condemn him. Verses 2 through 5. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto them, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answer thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Burkett notes, It's very observable how readily our Savior answers before Pilate. Pilate said, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Thou sayest it, or it is as thou sayest. But to all the accusations of the chief priests, and to all that they falsely laid to his charge before Pilate, our Savior answers never a word. He answered Pilate, but would not answer the chief priests a word before Pilate, probably for these reasons, because his innocency was such as needed no apology, because their calumnies and accusations were so notoriously false that they needed no confutation to show his contempt of death, and to teach us by his example to despise the false accusations of malicious men, and to learn us patience and submission, when for his sake we are slandered and traduced. For these reasons our Savior was a deaf man, not answering the calumnies of the chief priests. But when Pilate asked him a question, which our Savior knew that a direct answer to would cost him his life, Art thou king of the Jews? He replies, I am. Hence, says the Apostle, 1 Timothy 6.13, that Jesus Christ, before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession, teaching us that although we may and sometimes ought to hold our peace when our own reputation is concerned, yet must we never be silent when the honor of God and his truth may effectually be promoted by a free and full confession. For, says Christ, whosoever denies me before men, him will I deny in the presence of my Father and before all his holy angels. Verses 6 through 15. Now at that feast he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, who lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, and who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people, that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered, and said again unto them, What will ye that I should do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, 
Why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him! And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Burkett notes, Now at the feast, that is, at the feast of the Passover, which by way of eminency is called the feast, the governor used to release a prisoner, possibly by way of memorial of their deliverance out of Egypt. Accordingly, Pilate makes a motion that Christ may be the prisoner set at liberty in honor of their feast, for he was sensible that what they did was out of envy and malice. Observe here, one, what were the sins which immediately occasioned the death of Christ? They were covetousness and envy. Covetousness caused Judas to sell him to the chief priests, and envy caused the chief priests to deliver him up to Pilate to crucify him. Envy is a killing and murdering passion. Envy slayeth the silly one. Job 5.2 That is, it slayeth the silly person who harbors this pestilent lust in his breast and bosom, being like a fire in his bones, continually preying upon his spirits. And it is also the occasion of slaying many a holy and innocent person, for who can stand before envy? The person envying wishes the envied out of the way, yea, out of the world, and if need be will not only wish it, but lend a lift upon occasion towards it also. Witness the chief priests here, whose envy was so conspicuous and barefaced that Pilate himself takes notice of it. He knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. Observe, too, how unwilling, how very unwilling, Pilate was to be an instrument in our Savior's death. One, while he expostulates with the chief priests, saying, What evil hath he done? Another, while he bids them take him and judge him according to their law. Nay, St. Luke says that Pilate came forth three several times professing that he found no fault in him. Luke 23. From hence note that hypocrites within the visible church may be guilty of such tremendous acts of wickedness as the conscience of infidels and pagans without the church may boggle at and protest against. Pilate, a pagan, absolves Christ, while the hypocritical Jews that heard his doctrine and saw his miracles do condemn him. Observe lastly how Pilate suffers himself to be overcome with the Jews' importunity and contrary to the light of his own reason and judgment delivers the holy and innocent Jesus first to be scourged and then crucified. It is a vain apology for sin when persons pretend that it was not committed with their own consent, but at the instigation and importunity of others. Such is the frame and constitution of a man's soul that none can make him either wicked or miserable without his own consent. Pilate, willing to consent the people when he had scourged Jesus, delivered him up to be crucified. Here observe that as the death of the cross was a Roman punishment, so was the manner of the Romans first to whip their malefactors and then crucify them. Now the manner of the Romans scourging is said to be thus. They stripped the condemned person and bound him to a post. Two strong men first scourged him with rods of thorns, then two others scourged him with whips of cords full of knots, and last of all, two more with whips of wire, and therewith tore off the very flesh and skin from the malefactor's back and sides. That our blessed Savior was thus cruelly scourged by Pilate's commands seems to some not improbable. From that of the psalmist, Psalm 129.3, The plowers plowed upon my back and made long furrows. 
which is spoken prophetically of Christ, was literally fulfilled in the day of his scourging. But why was the precious and tender body of our Holy Lord thus galled, rent, and torn with scourging? Doubtless to fulfill that prophecy, Isaiah 1, 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair, that by his stripes we might be healed. And from his example learn not to think it strange if we find ourselves scourged with the tongue, with the hand, or with both, when we see our dear Redeemer bleeding by stripes and scourges before our eyes. Verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band, and they clothed them with purple, and plaited a crown of thorns, and put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Burkett notes, The next part of our Savior's suffering consists of cruel mocking. He had owned himself to be the king of the Jews, that is, a spiritual king, in and over the church. But the Jews, expecting that the Messiah should have appeared in the pomp of an earthly prince, and finding themselves disappointed of their expectation in our Savior, they look upon him as a deceiver and impostor, and accordingly treat him as a mock king, with all the marks of derision and scorn. For first, they put a crown upon his head, but a very ignominious and painful one, a crown of thorns. They place a scepter in his hand, but that of a reed, a robe of scarlet or purple upon his body, and then bowed their knees before him, as they were wont to do before their princes, crying, Hail, King! Thus were all the marks of scorn imaginable put upon our dear Redeemer. Yet what they did in jest, God permitted to be done in earnest. For all these things were signs and marks of sovereignty, and Almighty God caused the regal dignity of his Son to shine forth even in the midst of his greatest abasement. Once was all this jeering and sport but to flout majesty. And why did Christ undergo all this ignominy, disgrace, and shame but to show what was due unto us for our sins? as also to give an example, to bear all the scorn, reproach, and shame imaginable for his sake, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame, as well as endured the cross. Verses 21 through 37. And they compelled one, Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine, mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand, the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyeth the temple and buildest in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross, 
that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he calleth Eliza. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice, and gave up the ghost. Burkett notes, The sentence of death being passed by Pilate, who can with dry eyes behold the pomp of our Savior's bloody execution? Forth comes the blessed Jesus out of Pilate's gate, bearing that cross which soon after was to bear him. And with his cross on his shoulder, he marches towards Golgotha. And when they see he can go no faster, they force Simon, the Cyrenian, not out of compassion, but indignation, to be the porter of his cross. The Cyrenian, being a Gentile, not a Jew, that bear our Savior's cross, thereby might be signified that the Gentiles should have a part in Christ as well as the Jews, and be sharers with them in the benefits of the cross. At length our Holy Lord comes to Golgotha, the place of his bitter and bloody execution. Here, in a public place, with infamous company, betwixt two thieves, is he crucified. That is, fastened to a great cross of wood, his hands stretched forth abroad, and his feet closed together, and both hands and feet fastened with nails. His naked body was lifted up in the open air, hanging betwixt heaven and earth, signifying thereby that the crucified person deserved to lie in neither. This shameful, painful, and accursed death did the holy and innocent Jesus suffer and undergo for shameless sinners. Some observe all the dimensions of length, breadth, depth, and height in our Savior's suffering. For length, his passion was several hours long, from twelve to three, exposed all that time both to hunger and cold. The thieves that were crucified with him endured only personal pains, but he underwent the miseries of all mankind. As to its breadth, his passion extended over all the powers and parts of his soul and body, no part free but his tongue, which was at liberty to pray for his enemies. His sight was tormented with scornful gestures of those who passed by wagging their heads. His hearing grieved with the taunts and jeers of the priests and people. His smelling offended with noisome savors in the place of skulls. His taste with the gall and vinegar given him to drink. His feeling was wonderfully affected by the nails which pierced his tender nerves and with the multiplicity of wounds. And for the depth of his passion, it was as deep as hell itself, enduring tortures in his soul as well as torments in his body groaning under the burden of desertion and crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Lastly, for the height of his passion, his suffering were as high as heaven, his person being infinite as well as innocent, no less than the Son of God, which adds infinite worth and value to his suffering. Lord, let us be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length depth and height of our Savior's love and suffering for us, and let us know that love of his which pathes knowledge. Observe next the inscription wrote by Pilate over our suffering Savior. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
It was the manner of the Romans, when they crucified a malefactor, to publish the cause of his death in capital letters placed over the head of the person. Now it was observable how wonderfully the wisdom of God overruled the heart and pen of Pilate to draw this title, which was truly honorable, and fix it to his cross. Pilate is Christ's herald and proclaims him king of the Jews. Learn hence that the regal dignity of Christ was proclaimed by an enemy, and that in a time of his greatest suffering and reproaches. Pilate, without his own knowledge, did our Savior an imminent piece of service. He did that for Christ, which none of his own disciples dares do. Not that he did it designedly, but from the special overruling providence of God. No thanks to Pilate for all this, because the highest service performed to Christ undesignedly shall neither be accepted nor rewarded by God. Observe farther the several aggravations of our Lord's suffering upon the cross. One, from the company he suffered with. Two thieves. It had been a sufficient disparagement to our blessed Savior to have been sorted with the best of men, but to be numbered with the scum of mankind is such an indignity as confounds our thoughts. This was designed by the Jews to dishonor and disgrace our Savior the more, and to persuade the world that he was the greatest of offenders. But God overruled this also for fulfilling an ancient prophecy concerning the Messiah. Isaiah 53, last verse. And he was numbered with the transgressors. 2. Another aggravation of our Lord's suffering upon the cross was the scorn and mocking derision which he met with in his dying moments, both from the common people, from the chief priests, and from the thieves that suffered with him. The common people reviled him, wagging their heads. The chief priests, though men of age and gravity, yet barbarously mocked him in his misery. And not only so, but they atheistically scoff and jeer at his faith and affiance in God, saying, He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, if he will have him. Where note that persecutors are generally atheistical scoffers. The chief priests and elders, though knowing men, yet they blaspheme God. They mock at his power and deride his providence, which is as bad as to deny his being so that from hence we may gather that those who administer to God in holy things by way of office, if they be not the best, they are the worst of men. No such bitter enemies to the power of godliness as the ministers of religion who were never acquainted with the efficacy and power of it upon their own hearts and lives. Nothing on this side of hell is worse than a wicked priest, a minister of God devoted to the service of the devil. A third aggravation of our Lord's suffering upon the cross was this, that the thieves that suffered with him reviled him with the rest. That is, one of them, as St. Luke has it, or perhaps both of them might do at first, which if so increases the wonder of the penitent thief's conversion. From the impenitent thief's reviling Christ, we learn that neither shame nor pain will change the mind of a resolute sinner. But even then, when he is in the suburbs of hell, will he blaspheme. They that were with him reviled him. But the most aggravating circumstance of all the rest in our Lord's suffering was this, that he was forsaken of his father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Thence learn that the Lord Jesus Christ, when suffering for our sins, was really deserted and forsaken by his father, and left destitute of all sensible consolation. Why hast thou forsaken me? Learn farther that under this desertion Christ despaired not, but still retained a firm persuasion of God's love unto him, 
and experience necessary supports from it. My God, my God, these are words of affiance and faith. Christ was thus forsaken for us that we might never be forsaken by God. Yet by God's forsaking of Christ, we are not to understand any abatement of divine love, but only a withdrawing from the human nature, the sense of his love, and a letting out upon his soul a deep, afflicting sense of displeasure against sin. There is a twofold desertion, the one total, final, and eternal, by which God utterly forsakes a person, both as to grace and glory, being for a sin wholly cast out of God's presence and adjudged to eternal torments. This Christ was not capable of, nor could the dignity of his person admit it. The other is a partial, temporary desertion, when God, for a little moment, hides his face from his children. Now this was most agreeable to Christ's nature and also suitable to his office, who was to satisfy the justice of God for our forsaking him and to bring us back again to God, that we might be received forever. Observe, lastly, what a miraculous evidence Christ gave of his Godhead. Instantly, before he gave up the ghost, he cried out with a loud voice. This shows that he did not die according to the ordinary course of nature, gradually drawing on, as we express it. But his life was whole in him, to the last, and nature as strong as it was at first. Other men die by degrees, and towards their end, their sense of pain is much blunted. But Christ stood under the pains of death in his full strength, and his life was whole and entire in him to the very last moment. This was evident by the mighty outcry he made when he gave up the ghost, contrary to the sense and experience of all persons. Now that he could cry with such a loud voice as he did, in articulo mortis, could have kept himself from dying if he would. Hence we learn that when Christ died, he rather conquered death than was conquered by it. He must voluntarily and freely lay down his life before death could come at him. Thus died Christ, the captain of our salvation, and like Samson became more victorious by his death than he was in his life.